This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 477. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And uh, I want to say spring is in the air, at least here in New York right now. And uh, it's been a very busy last few months. I continue to power through doing all kinds of fun, interesting gigs, shows. Uh, We do have two spots remaining for the 2019 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive. I should say two early bird spots, but really only uh, probably room for five more. We've got, I think, nine or ten people signed up now. Uh, So it's a very intimate affair. And if you're interested in joining us this year, the dates are... June 7 through 10, uh, 2019. I'm getting very close to announcing my special guest. We have people coming from South America, from the UK, from Australia, from uh, Canada, I believe, from all over the US. So it's going to be an exciting international bunch. And if you want more information, just go to my website, click on the intensives, uh, sorry, the clinics slash intensives tab, and you'll be taken to the 2019 uh, Daniel Glass, New York Jazz Intensive website. So, uh, without further ado, I want to jump into today's topic. And, uh, I don't know if you guys remember way back, um, the second podcast I ever did was, uh, and it's episode 303, uh, of Drummer's Resource Podcasts. It was only the second one that, that I had done. Um, was I... One of the things I wanted to do as part of this podcast in sharing with you some of the evolutionary uh, stuff that I'm really excited about and have learned about the history and evolution of drumming in American music over, you know, over the years I've been researching it, had to do, I wanted to present either a song or present an album or present uh, one particular sort of uh, small, unique document that would then represent a, a so it was a microcosm that would represent some major um moment in music history so rock around the clock of course was a song that you know many folks uh considered to to be the song that broke the style of rock and roll to the to the masses at large and um i had a great time checking out that episode um this today what i'm going to do is talk about a single album a single recording, not one song, but uh, what we would call an album, a CD by today's standards, but was an album when it was released back in 1950. And that album is uh, the famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert by the Benny Goodman Orchestra. And, uh, you know, of we being drummers, of course, the featured drummer in this group was Gene Krupa. And um, it gives me an, an exciting opportunity to talk more about Gene Krupa as one of my favorite drummers ever. And part of the reason why I'm, you know, and, and he was an incredibly important drummer that all of us need to, to know more about. One of the reasons that 
I was inspired to do this podcast is a couple of weeks ago, I performed a, a clinic at the Delaware drum show, which is, uh, you know, out here in, in the Delaware sort of Philly area It happens every year. And I love going down there. Uh, there are several vintage drum shows that happen all over the country. There's one, there's a Hollywood drum show. There's a Connecticut drum show. There's the Delaware show. There's one happens in Nashville sometimes. Uh, and of course the biggest of these vintage shows is the Chicago drum show and it gives an opportunity for the vintage and custom community to come together. And, and, uh, it's a very kind of fun, tight knit community. If you're into vintage drums, you should definitely check out one of these shows. If you, um, you kind of like that vibe, uh, I, I highly recommend you check them out. They're fun. They're they're It's not as big as something like the NAM show or PASIC. It's a much smaller, more intimate affair. And they have great clinicians every year. Um, just like a PASIC would, or, um, you know, you could see great players, uh, but often the, the, the subject matter is older, you know, uh, more historically related topics. So I did a clinic about Gene Krupa and Sing Sing Sing, and I'm, I'm going to try to get it together to put together a bunch of these Sing 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 clinics all over, uh, all over the country over the next couple of years. I've been wanting to do this for a while, but my schedule has just been so busy. I haven't been able to, to, to put it together, but it's a fun clinic and it digs into, of course, Gene Krupa's most famous song, Sing Sing Sing, which is a, a very important, um, for drummers, a very important moment, watershed moment in, in our evolution as drummers, because it established the drummer as an equal member of the band, as a sort of a featured performer, a featured soloist. And Gene Krupa was really the first one to step up and bring this to the masses. Uh, and he, the, the original version of Sing 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 came out, well, the song was written in 1936. It was recorded by many folks, um, because it was, it was a, Great song, singable, uh, fun kind of party tune. It was actually written by Louis Prima, for those of you who know Louis Prima's 1950s output. But this was 1930s, 1936. And Benny Goodman covered the song, uh, recorded it, uh, well, toured with it for a whole year before recording it in 1937. By the time that they recorded it in 37, they had added all these parts to it and really made it their own, all these instrumental sections. And in fact, although the original version is a um, a vocal version, it's totally instrumental by the time you get to, to Goodman. Uh, and the, the entire song had ballooned to be almost nine minutes long. So what I do is I break the song down. I talk about the history, evolution of it, of the beat, of Krupa, how he came to prominence, talk about um, where the beat comes from and why this was the moment in time when a drummer could play a big groove on the tom-tom like this and be able to, to get, you know, to to have it be embraced as opposed to an earlier time when uh, drummers were really discouraged from playing out, certainly on recordings because the recording equipment at the time could not handle so much volume and such large explosive sounds. Also, um, you know, drummers were in general discouraged from stepping out because they were often playing with small uh, acoustic groups, early jazz bands, or, um, you know, instruments that just could not compete with the volume. And of course there was no amplification at this point, but by the time we get to 36, 37, the bands are getting bigger and, uh, drummers, you know, begin to have this, this moment, the drum set in its evolution is, is, is getting to a place where it's looking more like the drum set that we know today. And, you know, Krupa was the man. So, um, if you're interested in learning more about Krupa, you know, hopefully I'll get this clinic out there and I'll start performing it all over the place. But, uh, in the meantime, 
Uh, I did an episode all about Krupa specifically uh, here on Drummer's Resource, which was episode 409. And I interviewed a guy who's probably the world's foremost Gene Krupa fanatic, expert, uh, historian. His name is Brooks Tegler. And we had a very wonderful conversation about Gene Krupa and his, his impact, his influence. So I encourage you to go check that out. By the way, um, if you go to the Drummer's Resource website, You'll find all these episodes, and you can punch in keywords. If you put in Gene Krupa, you'll find it. If you put in Rock Around the Clock, you'll find it. But you can also go to my website and look under the podcast tab. It's just danielglass.com forward slash podcasts, plural. Or you can just go to danielglass.com and grab the podcast tab. And that'll break down all the episodes that I have recorded for Drummer's Resource because Drummer's Resource has other uh, podcasts other than my own so I, you know, every three or four podcasts that come out on Drummer's Resource is one of mine. So that'll give you a look at all of the podcasts I've done to date, which is now I think I've done 60 episodes, lots of different topics, and includes those two that we talked about. So today I'm going to focus specifically on the 1938 Carnegie Hall concert by the Benny Goodman Band. Now, you might ask, well, why? What's the big deal? Carnegie Hall, okay, most people know it. It's a famous hall here in New York City. You know, why? is the Benny Goodman concert that was recorded there in 1938 so important. So it's an incredible story. The story of the recording uh, itself, of the concert itself, um, and, you know, it, 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 there's many reasons why you should check out this album. The first is that it will introduce you to the swing era in a way that maybe no other recording can do. And what I mean by that is a lot of people think about swing music or the big band era of the 1930s as something quaint in the mood. My grandma likes that. Fine. That's not really for me here in, you know, drummers of the, or musicians of the 21st century might say that 80 years ago. What, how does that relate to me? Well, if you check this out, what's really amazing about this album is that you know, Carnegie Hall is one of the great concert halls of the world. And, you know, you, you, uh, yeah, there's a famous joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? You know, practice, baby, practice, right? So, uh, you know, it, it, everybody knows what Carnegie Hall is. It was created by Andrew Carnegie. He was a famous bazillionaire, uh, back not sure what year it was 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 endowed uh, by Andrew Carnegie, but um, it is it is superb acoustics. And the thing, first of all, about a jazz band, got to remember that these big bands, these swing bands, back in the 1930s, were jazz bands. And jazz at this time in history was not considered something uh, that we think about it today. Today we think about it as sort of a rarefied American art form. Sort of, a lot of people say jazz is akin to American classical music because it it was something that was created here in America, was a result of European and African American coming together, uh, creating something new that the world had never seen before, uh, incredibly popular, incredibly danceable. It was all about the American spirit uh, of individualism, right? Uh, meaning that jazz musicians improvise. They express themselves as individuals rather than reading something uh, that was written for them on a page. This was a very new thing. So jazz uh, was revolutionary. On the other hand, it also had its roots in African-American culture. And there, this being the country having a history of racism, jazz in its early years was not seen as music 
that was acceptable for decent American citizens, right? Jazz was something that had evolved in the speakeasies of the prohibition era run by gangsters. Uh, and people first got into jazz, young people, by going to underground clubs to hear the music. And that was, that's one of the reasons that jazz was, was drawn out of New Orleans, the great jazz musicians. There's a number of reasons why. But they could play in the North, usually in clubs that were owned by gangsters as part of, you know, illegal drinking and mob life. Of course, you know, you think of, uh, John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and, and, uh, of course, Al Capone being the most famous, you know, gangster of the 1920s, bootlegging illegal liquor because prohibition prohibited the, uh, the, the consumption and, uh, manufacture and transport of alcohol. So, uh, you know, now we're in the thirties and by the time that the big band era arrives, jazz has become much, much more of a mainstream, uh, art form accepted by large swaths of American society. But Carnegie Hall was a place where, where uh, classical music had been played. Classical music was authentic. This was still European art form and culture, right? There were American composers, but the music was originated in Europe. This was high culture. And to uh, it was almost unthinkable up until this point to have something so guttural and low and, you know, quote unquote, black as jazz music. So, uh, to have a jazz band perform in the most sort of modern style of jazz was in itself revolutionary. It's the first time ever you really had jazz in Carnegie Hall in, in, in the sense of that it was not, it was unrehearsed, improvised music. So that's an important reason to listen. Secondly, as I mentioned, Carnegie Hall had exceptional acoustics and the entire concert was recorded with one microphone uh, suspended over the band. There was there was a second microphone, maybe more, but at least one mother microphone that the vocalist used. There were some vocals, but in general, they didn't have you know uh, uh, amplification in the way that we have it today. They didn't have twenty five mics on a big band where every soloist steps up to a mic. They didn't have six or eight mics on the drums. So. What's what's so impressive about when you listen to this record is that the the one microphone recording of what was happening in the hall, the acoustics were so good that actually you can hear what's happening in in a, a, a way that's much better than when you actually listen to the studio recordings of this period where they were playing to microphones uh, and they were trying to capture in high fidelity what, what the jazz bands were doing. But to capture the sound of Carnegie Hall, um, really, uh, I think when you listen to this record today, you can hear everything that's going on. And that's fantastic. And of course, again, from the perspective of drummers, what you're hearing is Gene Krupa at his finest. Now, you also have to remember that, you know, this record was not released, this Carnegie Hall record was not released until 1950. And part of the reason was that it was never intended to be recorded for release. Uh, at the time, 1936, that the album, that the concert, 1938, that the concert happened, um, that re- recordings done in recording studios were were put onto 78s, uh, what we call 78 RPM records, and there was a maximum limit to how long each song could be. So three and a half or even uh, uh, four and a half minutes um, and so 
if a band, a jazz band, which has full of improvisation, is playing much longer songs, of course, four and a half minutes is short for a jazz tune, as as you probably know. Um, that was a that was a problem. But when these bands would play live in concert, they would stretch out and they would play much longer pieces. So, um, interestingly, the the way that the Carnegie Hall concert was recorded onto acetates, uh, it was they were able to capture these long jams. So whereas you would listen to a recording, either, you know, it would be broken up into pieces, the longer song, and you'd have to turn the record over and hear the other three and a half or four minutes on the other side, which was what happened on the original version of Sing 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 from 1936, had to be put onto an A and a B side of a 78 recording because it's nine minutes long, like I said. But here, Sing, 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 the version on Carnegie Hall is 12 minutes long, and you get it as one long song. And they could not release these effectively until the introduction of the LP, the long play 33 and a third, which rotated at half the speed, basically, of a 78 RPM record. Uh, So they could put much more music onto the disc. So the Sing 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 on the Carnegie Hall record is 12 minutes long. There's some other jams, one being Honeysuckle Rose, that's 14 minutes long. And so that is an amazing experience. Second, or third, maybe, I'm saying why you should listen to this record. They they really didn't have the ability in 1936 to record live concerts uh, very well. They could not control the, 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 you know, uh, the environment enough to be able to do that. However, on this recording, which was done, like I said, to a different kind of acetate and was uh, able to capture these, these long or maybe even to tape, I'm not sure of the details, but whatever format they recorded it in, they were able to capture the sound of the audience, which was beautifully captured in that with that one suspended mic over the entire proceedings. So for the first time, uh, or in a, in a, in a, an unusual way, you hear the music of the 1930s with an audience that was, was there and really participating. And what this record sounds like is a rock concert by, uh, a, a, you know, a live album by a rock concert. Um, and that is, uh, truly exceptional because when you listen to it, you understand the impact that the music had on people. So you've got these longer jams, you've got great fidelity, you could hear everything the drummer is doing, you hear, you know, the crowd responding, and you begin to get a sense when you listen to this record of how powerful the swing era was and why, you know, this music was so amazing. And when you listen to like a recording of In the Mood from the 1930s, you might say, well, that sounds dated. It sounds quaint. Um, But you don't get that sense of what you hear when you listen to this live record. And what's the great story of this record is that, you know, the for 12 years, from 1938 to 1950, these recordings were protected by Benny Goodman. He stored them away in a, in a closet or something. The, the myth, and, and Benny actually in, in his introduction to the 1950 release, he gives a little recorded intro uh, of, of, you know, the story of, of these. He says that his daughter discovered them while playing in a closet at, at the home. He dis- she discovered these, these tapes or acetates or whatever they were. Uh, and, um, and, and they said, oh, the Carnegie Hall concert from 12 years ago. Oh, well, let's listen. And they discovered this great document and they put it out as, a um 
you know, as a, as a live album. So, uh, it's, it's great on, on all of these levels. And when I listened to this record and spent some time with it back when I was first starting to do all my research into these historical eras of music, I was absolutely knocked out by the vibrancy of, of this album, this recording. So it's interesting because there's a lot of firsts going on here. And before I get into the specifics of the album itself, I want to talk about sort of, you know, the, these, these firsts. And obviously the first of the first is that this was the first jazz concert to be held at Carnegie Hall. And so what, what, um, and so, okay, so we're going to just talk about the firsts. So that's a, an amazing thing. And the fact they were able to capture it and show just how far jazz had come, how popular it was as a mainstream art form that it could now be performed in the, you know, the hallowed uh, concert halls of America's most hallowed classical music hall uh, is is a big deal. Um, and uh, another first is that, as I said, this this was one of the first live uh, jazz recordings. So in 1950, when it was released, again, this was a breakthrough because you, you had never heard a live concert before. And the fact that this was from 12 years earlier made it all, all the more exciting, right? Uh, this was, you know, I should mention that LPs had only been premiered two years earlier, 1948. They did not exist before then. So, and this is an interesting little side story about recordings and records and such. Um, you know, prior to 1948, the only format you could buy a, 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 a disc, and they weren't even made of vinyl, they were made of uh, shellac, and they would break very easily. But you would have to buy a book of 78. So you would, you know, imagine um, buying a very large, imagine a record cover that is about four inches deep. And inside, you would flip it like a book, and it would be full of discs. And these were 78 discs. They were smaller. They were like 10 inches in size. Uh, and they um, and each one had a few recordings on it because you could only put so much material. So to have an album, you actually had to buy something that had five or six discs. These discs were very breakable. If you dropped that you know album, as it were, uh, that collection of discs, they would shatter. So this was very cumbersome. So by the time we get to 1948, of course, I've mentioned many times before, uh, technology was advanced tremendously by the war effort in World War II. Plastics first made their appearance and a lot of other kind of modern um, uh, sort of essential elements that we take for granted today were made, developed during that war effort. And one of them was this material, I believe, called shellac that record albums, you know, were then made out of moving forward. And it's that typical kind of flexible, bendable material. Uh, you have to really work hard to break a vinyl record. Uh, you know, I, they, they, I, I'm, and I, again, don't quote me on the material, but certainly as, as recording albums progress, and again, remember we had vinyl LPs were available up into and through the 80s, the mid-80s. The CD didn't fully take over until probably the end of the 80s. And now, by the way, vinyl is back, right? So as as a popular format, uh, and bands will release their new record on vinyl, CDs are gone. Uh, so they release it maybe as a streaming content to be listened to on Spotify or iTunes, and then they'll release it in vinyl. So go vinyl. Uh, but in any case, this you know, 
1948, they were smart. The industry got smarter. They said, well, let's release a disc that could hold more music than a 78 and that's more durable. So now you get the vinyl LP. It has a side one, a side two, holds about 45 minutes of music. You still have to turn it over, but that's now the standard. Uh, but they also released a second format in 1948 or right about that time because there was a new demographic growing that I've also spoken about that came about as a result of post-World War II. Remember, World War II ended in 1945. What did the soldiers do? They all came home and they made a ton of babies. Uh, and that created this generation called the baby boom generation that began in 1946. And all through the 40s and 50s up to 1964, there was this huge glut of babies born in the United States. And that generation, has it, as it moves its way forward, has had a lot of power, buying power. Um, and the baby boomers are now firmly in control of the levers of government and industry and all that. But um, interestingly, the they were kids at this point. And Madison Avenue said, we should design a format of record that is not only holds more music, but also holds less music. Say, for example, one song on each side, and we'll call that the 45. So 78 spun at 78 RPMs per minute. That was fast. 33 was about half that speed. 33 RPM records, LPs, they're commonly known, the big ones. And then you had the 45 RPM record, which spun a little faster than LPs, but not as fast as 78s. And uh, on these, you could put a single song, and they were called singles. So, um, for you know, and those were around as long as the LP was. And when I was a kid, of course, and these were geared towards teenagers, the, the name teenager was invented by Madison Avenue. They saw this baby boom generation start to grow up in post-war America. Economic times were good. They had uh, buying power to be able to start buying stuff for themselves. So the, the 45 RPM emerged as a marketing tool to this new demographic that was dubbed teenagers. So you got the 45 RPM, you got the, the 33 and a third, uh, LP. Uh, and so, but the Benny Goodman Carnegie Hall album was one of the first double LPs, right? Remember we had double LPs back in the day. So you had four sides of music at once. You even had a few triple LPs. I remember as a kid, uh, buying, um, the Emerson Lake and Palmer triple LP, uh, their triple live album. And that was pretty, uh, uh, you know, ostentatious and some might say, uh, indulgent, but in general, you know, often live albums were double, double live, uh, double live albums, kiss alive, kiss alive too. They were all double albums because you wanted to capture a lot of music that the band put out live and give people the concert experience as if they were at a full length concert. So now you've got two times 45, uh, 90 minutes. So you got a 90 minute show on a double live LP or a lot of, of course, prog bands made concept records, the wall, for example. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these, so double LPs were popular, but one of the first double live LPs was, uh, the Benny Goodman, uh, famous concert at Carnegie Hall, 1938. So it set a new standard that then the rockers followed. And the fact that it was a live album, as I already mentioned, was a first. It was the first jazz live album. So, you know, also it was the first jazz record that sold over a million copies. And I, I guess it was the first jazz LP, I should say, that sold over a million copies. So it's double live, probably was very expensive, but people were amazed and, and, and excited by it. So it's interesting how even 12 years later, that's how big swing still was. Remember 1950, we're moving 
uh, out of the big band era, moving into bebop on the jazz side, moving into rhythm and blues and rock and roll on, on the pop music side. And yet this album was tremendously popular. So I'm going to post some stuff about this. There's a great book written about just about this concert. Uh, and I'll post a link to that. I'll post a link to where you can get some of the best, um, releases of this. Some have fantastic, uh, liner notes. Uh, at least one of them has all the talking in between the songs. So you really get the, literally the entire concert, no editing of any kind. And that's the, I always love that kind of stuff. So anyway, I guess you might say that, that this album, if we could take two other legendary albums and compare them, uh, of course, Saturday Night Fever came out in 1976. And that really was the album that represented the culmination of the disco era. And it also was a culmination of the Bee Gees, you know, cementing their dominance uh, over that era. It had many number one hits on it. It was a movie soundtrack. Um, and it was sort of an iconic album of an era. And I think Carnegie Hall Record could represent this. Another album that came out uh, in the 70s was Frampton Comes Alive. And for those of you who are my age in your 40s and 50s, you will remember that this album was a jillion seller. It was a double live album. And on one side of the album was a 14 uh, minute version of uh, Frampton's hit, Do You Feel Like We Do? And it was 14 minutes long and you hear screaming crowds. And that album was just crazy popular. And it sort of represented like a cool evolution for FM radio because on FM radio, they would play the entire 14 minute version of that song and they wouldn't edit it. There was an edited version they played on AM radio. But one of the great things about FM radio, of course, if you remember in the sixties and seventies, when FM really emerged, uh, they would play the full versions of songs. And that was really cool. And I had that album as a kid and I listened to that side over and over again, I know it inside and out. So anyway, perhaps some of you had the same experience. But you could sort of say that as a cultural milestone, this Carnegie Hall album could be seen in the same light. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the album itself. And let's also talk about Gene Krupa and how he fits into this picture. And again, I say that if you want to understand what the big band era really was all about why it was such a hugely popular moment in time. Um, you got to listen to this record. Let and so the I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna go through the album track by track, but I'm gonna sort of talk it down, talk down how they organized the concert, and talk about many of the song titles and what they represented. And the first thing that's really like culturally important to understand about this record that I love is that. Um, they took a section at the beginning of the concert. The first, the, the Goodman Orchestra, the full big band, came out and played um, a couple of tunes to set the, the tone. And I'm going to talk about how the evolution from jazz at its beginnings to, to the big band happened. But what they did in this concert was they, they began, after these two songs, by breaking things down to a Dixieland quartet and performing a bunch of classic jazz tunes. They, they did a section of the concert paying tribute to the history of jazz. Now, you might think, well, 1936, was there even a history of jazz? Well, there was. And the first sort of recordings that were uh, 
titled jazz recordings that we could sort of begin to identify on a national level, this style called jazz that became popular on, on a, on a big level was, uh, these recordings done by a group called the original Dixieland jazz band who were from new Orleans. Now it's a bit complicated because, uh, they got a lot of credit for sort of being the inventors of jazz. Uh, but it was sort of a rigged playing field. The original Dixieland jazz band were a white group of musicians. And of course, as we know, when we study our jazz history, that jazz was, you know, there were white elements, but jazz as a whole came out of a black, uh, you know, the, the black community or the black perspective on music. And, um, yet black musicians, of course, New Orleans being in the South, Jim Crow laws, racism, were, you know, they had a much harder time, uh, being able to, uh, uh, you know, perform, record, and have opportunities to get out there and become successful at their music than white musicians. So it it's interesting that this band, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which of course had the name jazz in the name of the band, giving you a big clue, big, you know, flashing red lights. Hey, this is a new sound called jazz, and we're a jazz band uh, from Dixieland, you know, which is which is the South. So and we're the original Dixieland jazz band, you know, so it's like kind of getting up and saying like, you know, I'm the original OG rapper band and that's the name of my, you know, who I am and you happen to be white. But in a lot of ways you could actually using rap as an example, a lot of people first learned about rap from hearing Vanilla Ice or the Beastie Boys, you know, or slightly later on Eminem. They didn't really know that rap had started as a African American art form, you know, in the Bronx and and uh, other places. Uh, they only heard it when a white artist did it, and it it was mainstream because you know white artists there are more white people than black people in America, and and uh, when something's done by a white person, it becomes more acceptable, and that's just kind of you, we could argue about the the benefits of that or the problems with that. People said the same thing about Elvis. You know, well, Elvis stole everything from black artists or white, you know, Elvis introduced a lot of people to the music that had been created by black artists, in this case, rhythm and blues music or blues music. And therefore those black artists, you know, had help in their career. Same has been said about the Beatles. So this sort of argument over and over, you know, was definitely an issue going back to jazz. Um, but if you think about it, uh, in the 19, uh, rather if 1917 was the first year that quote unquote jazz recordings were released, um, then 20 years later, basically 1937 is 1938. So if you think about the cyclical nature of music, you know, think about the eighties had a resurgence in the two thousands and there were 80s bands made a comeback and people dressed like the 80s or used 80s sounds, you know, um, music of the 70s had a comeback in the 90s, sort of a move away from all the electric stuff or electronic stuff, I should say, that had represented sort of new wave in the 80s and the hair metal and sort of back to a stripped down kind of thing. So you have the Seattle scene, which the music's a lot more like the 70s than it is the 80s. Um, and so, and then bands, you know, uh, who were out of fashion are now in fashion again. So uh, in any case, one of the things Benny Goodman wanted to do was to celebrate this 20-year history of jazz. So they 
they break it down, the big band breaks down to a small group because that's where jazz began. Jazz started as a small group activity initially, uh, and it came from a marching band. And it was sort of an African-American interpretation of March music. I mean, that's very, very oversimplified. And you could say it begins really with ragtime and that evolves into jazz. But essentially, it's a marching band that starts to swing and that the you now have improv- improvisational soloing going on as well. And so, you know, that's where jazz began. And so they do tribute to they do. They play one of the original Dixieland jazz band songs. They also play a song that was made famous by Bix Beiderbecke, a uh, song Shine that was made famous by Louis Armstrong. And um, they play a song called Blue Reverie that was written by Duke Ellington, who was one of the most famous, um, you know, composers of jazz music. Uh, he got his start in the early 1920s. And so... Um, you know, they, they, they pay tribute to the origins of jazz, which I think is cool. And you get to see Krupa playing in this style. And one of the things about Krupa that I learned from this record, you know, if you go and watch most of what you see of Gene Krupa on YouTube, it's really not from the 1930s or even the 20s, which is when he first started playing and when he first came to, to the fore as a star. You see stuff from the 40s or even the 50s and 60s. Uh, there was a lot of footage. He was in a lot of movies uh, at that time. The movie of his life, the Gene Krupa story, was made at that time. And in those clips, he's playing a much more modern style. He's, he's mostly on a ride cymbal uh, or on a hi-hat. And uh, he's playing in a modern style. But you have to remember that Gene Krupa and all the drummers of the 1930s big band era uh, came from the playing in a 1920s style before there was a hi-hat, before there was a ride cymbal. And all the timekeeping was done uh, on the snare drum. It was still, as I said, going back to a march marching style. So people played these press rolls and they played their fills on woodblocks and cowbells and on the rims. And on small cymbals, and they did choke cymbal technique, where instead of a hi-hat that you would close your foot on two and four, you would, you know, and just play both hands on one small cymbal that you would choke on two and four to create this sense of afterbeat. And I talk a lot about this and demonstrate it, actually, on another podcast I did about um, working with a band... uh, the band of Vince Giordano, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks here in New York City, which is sort of the number one 1920s band in the world. And I made a podcast about, you know, the time I got to play with the best band in the world. Uh, and that was a great experience. And, you know, I demonstrate the choke cymbal technique in that. So I, and I talk more about 1920s drumming, but I don't want to get too bogged down with that here because we're already almost 40 minutes into this podcast. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm out of my mind, crazy going, getting into this, but they do this celebration. And then at the end of that, they do a jam session, uh, uh, on the song Honeysuckle Rose and Honeysuckle Rose was a very famous standard. It still is today written by Fats Waller. Maybe some of you have heard of Fats Waller. He was a, a very lively piano player, composer, singer, Um, He played incredible kind of stride style piano and then moved into the swing era and wrote a lot of very famous songs. And one of his most famous songs is called Honeysuckle Rose. And so they do this jam and they not only have Benny Goodman's band, but they invite a bunch of guest stars onto the stage from two other of the most famous big bands, that being Count Basie's band and Duke Ellington's band. 
And of course, we've heard of Duke Ellington, Count Basie. I mentioned Ellington earlier as an important composer. And Count Basie was, his band was more about the blues and taking the idea of the blues and really turning that into something that would formalizing it in a way and making it swing in a way that really laid the groundwork for all of jazz that would come for the next several decades. The bassy style of swing that was created by his rhythm section. Of course, the drummer of that rhythm section being Joe Jones. But Joe Jones is not on this, but the rest of the bassy's rhythm section, bassy himself, Freddie Green, the guitar player, Walter Page, the bass player, um, uh, are, are involved in this jam. Um, and, uh, uh, from Duke Ellington's band, uh, sorry, also Lester Young, uh, Buck Clayton, Johnny Hodges. Um, and, uh, so, uh, uh, these guys are all on this, uh, jam session, uh, on, on this Honeysuckle Rose jam session. And it's cool because as a listener, when you listen to this, you realize that you're listening to like a who's who of the greatest players of this era. And that's really fantastic. And you, you know, if you get the CD with the liner notes, you actually can see who's soloing when, oh, that's Lester Young style. Oh, that's Buck Clayton style. Oh, that's Basie, you know, oh, Freddie Green, you know, Freddie Green was known, he was Count Basie's guitar player, part of this, what was called the all American rhythm section. And he played, he hardly ever soloed and Benny Goodman throws him a solo in this. And I think he just plays some interesting stuff with chords. He doesn't do a single line solo, but you get to hear Freddie Green, the famous Freddie Green, take a solo. So anyway, I ramble on about these things, but this is another unique thing about this concert was this, you know, Goodman didn't just make it about himself. He made it a celebration of jazz and a celebration of jazz of the past and jazz of, of the present. And I'm going to cut off part one right here. I originally did this as one long file, uh, one long rant for an hour and 20 minutes, but I'm going to cut it off here uh, and we'll pick up the second half of the Gene Krupa, Benny Goodman, famous Carnegie Hall concert in uh, the next episode of the Daniel Glass podcast, uh, Daniel Glass show here on Drummer's Resource Podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. If you want to follow me on Facebook, it's Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, all of that jazz. Please send me an email at my website, danielglass.com. Let me know what you think of these podcasts. Uh, and I look forward to picking up second half of this Carnegie Hall concert uh, CD Uh, in the next episode of The Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. Keep swinging, baby. Mm -hmm.